We're going to read this morning from the book of Joshua. We're going to read from Joshua chapter 6. Continue our series. It's one of the most famous passages in Scripture, the Sunday school classic. It's the story of the walls of Jericho and Joshua leading the children of Israel around. So the book of Joshua chapter 6, we're going to read all of the chapter. Let's listen to the word of God. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march round the city, all the men of war going round the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march round the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a loud blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the people. And he said to the people, Go forward, march round the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going round at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that was in it within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you, devoted, you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, 
oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there, there the woman, woman and all who belonged to her as she swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord is with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Let's pray. Let's ask God really to speak to speak clearly and powerfully to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this familiar story. May you speak through familiar words to each one of us today. Speak clearly. Speak in a way that is spiritually relevant to each of us. And help us not only to hear, but help us to obey your word and to live it out in our lives. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, if Joshua had gathered together his advisors, those experts in, in the military field, he got together all his generals, the top men in his army, and he'd brought them together and had a meeting to discuss what they were going to do next. I wonder what ideas they would have come up with. They'd just crossed through the Jordan. They had put their first steps into the promised land, and right in front of them was this great walled city of Jericho. Huge walls, really thick. I wonder what the military experts would have come up with. One of them would probably say, well, the only way we get into this city is to go over the top of the wall, so we need to build up some big ramps, maybe get some ladders and make our way over the wall down into the city and capture it that way. Somebody would come up with some weaknesses in that attack, and somebody said, no, we can't go over, we've got to go under the walls, so we'll dig a tunnel, it'll take a little bit longer, we'll get a tunnel, come underneath, and we'll expose the weakness of the city that way. Somebody else would probably say, no, 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 we've actually got to go through the wall. Maybe we've got a battering ram. We find a weak spot in the wall. We'll put our energy there. If we can create a hole, we can get in. Somebody else would probably say, no, 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 no. Those aren't going to work. You're too open to attack from those kind of ideas. What we need to do is be a bit more patient. Circle the city. Lay siege to it. Don't let anybody out and don't let anybody in. Starve the people out of the city. Might take a little bit longer, but that's the way we will capture Jericho. All those suggestions would be very credible, but the Lord, as we see right at the start of this chapter, has a completely different suggestion. The kind of suggestion that no military expert would ever come up with. What he suggested to do was take your army, 40,000 men, walk around the city once. Do it for six days. Then on the seventh day, do it seven times. So 13 circuits in total. And then when the priests blow their horns, blow the trumpets, everybody shouts, the wall will collapse, you run in, capture the city. If one of the generals had come up with that suggestion, everybody in the room would have laughed at him. Nonsense. It's foolish. Cities don't fall by that way. Cities don't fall by people walking around and making lots of noise. It's never happened before and it never happened since. It is absolutely 
foolish suggestion from God. But actually, as we read the story, that's what happened. Now, why did God make it happen that way? You know what it was? It was a very, very powerful visual aid. When it happened, nobody was left in any doubt that only God could have done this. It was a visual aid so that everybody could see, everybody inside the city and everybody outside the city could see with their own eyes that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Only God could have done this and all the glory goes to him and him alone. No general, no soldier in this army could take any credit for the success. All the credit goes to God and God alone. And although it is God who has done this, I know it's the mighty hand of God that has made this happen, there's actually something else that's been involved in this. We don't read about it here in Joshua chapter 6. We actually read about it in the New Testament. And when we come into Hebrews 11, that great chapter of faith, we find this verse in verse 30. It says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. It is God who made the walls fall flat. But actually, what was involved in God making those walls flat? It says, By faith, the walls of Jericho. Whose faith? It was the faith of the people who walked around it for seven days. Let's think about this. God had given the instruction to Joshua. Imagine if the people had just laughed. Nonsense. What a foolish suggestion. There's no way we're going to do that. If they hadn't walked around the walls, what would they have missed? They would have missed this great miracle. They would have missed the opportunity to capture the city. Imagine they'd said in their head, that is a crazy idea. If we walk around, the people in the walls of Jericho will laugh at us. They will call us fools. There's no way we're going to do that. And if they had taken that attitude, think about what they would have missed out on. They would have missed out on the mighty hand of God. You see, the key in this whole chapter is the faith of the people. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. It's the key to this chapter. It wouldn't have happened unless they had put their faith in the mighty hand of God. Not only is faith the key in this chapter, faith is actually the key in each of our lives as well. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ, the key to our lives is having faith in a mighty God. I wonder in our lives, what do we miss out on? What mighty hands and acts of God do we miss out on because we don't put our faith in God? We're going to think about that this morning because in this chapter we're going to learn four key lessons about faith. Four key lessons that we see the people put into practice here. But these are four key lessons that actually apply to our lives. So as we head into this brand new week with its challenges and it's spiritual battles. How are we as the children of God supposed to live our lives? We are supposed to live our lives with faith in a mighty God. And so the four lessons we learn in this chapter apply to how you live your life this afternoon and tomorrow morning and the rest of the week, the rest of the month, the rest of the year, the rest of your lives as well. Here's the first lesson we find out in this chapter. Faith obeys. Right at the start, God gave Joshua some instructions. The instructions exactly what to do. A set of strange, peculiar, nonsensical instructions. But there's no record in this chapter of the people questioning God's suggestion, even though it was foolish. There's no record of the people complaining. What we actually see is they willingly believe the instructions that God gives them. 
and they actively obey, and for seven days they walked around the city. You see, faith obeys. That's what faith really is. Very simply, faith is believing and obeying. Believing and obeying, even when it might seem foolish to our minds, even when it may seem as if it's complete nonsense compared to the logic of the world, and if you were to share it with your work colleagues or your neighbors, they would look at you going, why would you want to do that? That's absolute nonsense. Faith is obeying, even when it may seem foolish to everybody else. You see, the Bible repeatedly shows that God delights in using strange methods to achieve wonderful things. The Old Testament's full of this, New Testament as well. Let me give you some examples. There's a story in the book of Judges about Samson, and Samson defeated hundreds and hundreds of the Philistine army. What weapon did he use? Was it the biggest sword, the most powerful spear? No. He used the jawbone, the jawbone of a donkey, to kill hundreds and hundreds of people. What nonsense. Imagine somebody come and get and shoot with a sword in one hand, and you come out with a, a jawbone of a donkey. You know, that's not going to work. But God uses the foolish things to show the mighty hand of God. There's other examples in the Bible as well. Think of the famous story of David and Goliath. You've got Goliath, this giant of a man with all his armor, with his sword, with his past record of success. And for 40 days as he challenges the Israelites, they're all too scared. The top fighters, nobody wants to go out and fight him. And then out comes this young boy. No spear no sword, no armor, and yet he comes against them in the name of the Lord God Almighty, and he comes with a pathetic-looking stone, and yet he slays the giant. Why? Because God uses the small and the foolish things that everybody else would laugh at to do incredible things for him. Another story in the Old Testament is the story of Naaman. Naaman was a captain in the Syrian army, and he has leprosy, this incurable disease. And the message goes to Elisha, the prophet of God, about this man's illness, and he says, you want to be cured? Go and bathe yourself seven times in the River Jordan. It's nonsense. Nobody with leprosy has ever washed himself in the River Jordan before and been healed. And the River Jordan's not even the cleanest. There's nicer rivers back in Syria where this man lives. And yet, he obeys. He puts faith in this instruction, even though it seems foolishness to the logic of this world. And what did he see? He saw this incredible miracle. It wasn't the water that healed him. It was his faith to obey that healed him for his sickness. Now, the greatest example, the greatest example that we have of the supreme example, I suppose, of God using foolish things to do something incredible is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ that we're going to celebrate when we eat these simple symbols later on, where God takes something that looks foolish to everybody else and does something incredible because it seems totally ridiculous, totally ridiculous that somebody dying on a wooden cross could provide life and provide salvation for millions and millions and millions of people throughout the world. How does that happen? Death at the hands of soldiers, execution, that's weakness, that's failure, and yet God takes the weak and the foolish things of this world and does something incredible, gives new life, gives salvation, gives hope, new birth to countless, countless people. First Corinthians puts it this way, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Those people who haven't believed in it, they look at, what nonsense, what absolute nonsense, somebody dying on a cross, but to us who are being saved, it is what? 
The power of God. There is power in the foolishness of the world sees it. That's how our God works. He takes foolish things and he does something absolutely incredible and amazing out of it. See, obedience is an essential part of faith. If you're sitting here this morning, you call yourself a Christian, if you claim to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you need to have faith. And you need to have faith on a daily basis. And faith requires you to obey what the Word of God says. And what the Word of God says often asks us to do things which are foolish in the eyes of everybody else. They might even seem like nonsense. God isn't calling us, not calling his church to walk around some walls. But he does call us to live out our faith and often doing things that do seem foolish to everybody else. Let me give you some of the examples, some examples. Let me take the words of Jesus Christ and some of the things that Christ taught us to do. Let's unpack these things. Because actually when you think about them, they're really foolish things in the logic of this world that Christ asks us to do. Here's one of the things Jesus told us to do. Love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. Love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. That sounds absolutely foolish. Go in the workplace. Find your friends in work who, who don't believe and say, this is, the be- this is the best way to live in life. Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and give you a hard time. People will laugh in your face. That is nonsense. That is not the logic of this world. Love your enemies. No, hate your enemies. Keep them at a distance. Don't have anything to do with people like that. That's the way people think. But say, Jesus says no. And he turns it completely upside down. He says, no, love these people and do good to them as well. So think about the workplace. Think about the work colleague who gives you a hard time. Think about the work colleague who's nasty in their words. Think about the work colleague who talks behind your back, who goes out of their way to look after themselves and to make things difficult for you. Think about the family relative the member of your family is just downright nasty at times. And the way they live, they say one thing and they do something else and they've caused you so much hurt and pain. They may even make things tough because they despise your faith that you have in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're at school. Think about the person in the school classroom who, who bullies you, who gives you a hard time, and the way things that they say to you. What does Jesus say your reaction should be in those situations? Love your enemies. Not just love them, do good to those who persecute you and give you a hard time. That is contrary to the logic of our word, world. And a non-Christian would say that is absolute bonkers. And you know what? Often we go with the flow of the logic of this world. I'm not going to love that person. And there's no way I'm going to do good to that person. And so we live like everybody else. And we don't obey, we don't put our faith in what God has instructed us to do. And I wonder how many blessings, I wonder how many mighty acts of God that we miss out on. I wonder how many times we miss out and how God turns around situations, situations that look to be actually against us, but yet God works And he works through us being obedient by loving our enemies and doing good to these people and the spiritual impact that that can have in people's lives. How often do we miss out on mighty acts of God 
because we don't obey. And the reason we don't obey is we don't have faith in the word of God. Love your enemies. That won't work. But that's what we're instructed to do. Let me give you another example. Here's what Jesus, our scripture says. It says it's more blessed to give than receive. That is crazy. That is bad economics. It's more blessed to give than receive. No, the attitude of the world is it's more blessed to take. The more I can get, that's the way to live. Completely countercultural. It's more blessed to give than receive. Now, we don't want to abuse that verse. Some people, prosperity gospel, take that and goes, well, it's more blessed to give than receive. The more you give, the more you're going to get. You're going to earn out. No, it doesn't say the more you're going to get. It says you're going to be blessed. There's a spiritual blessing. The more, it's more blessed to give than receive. And we're thinking financially, giving financially, but also giving of our time, giving of our gifts, giving of our efforts, of being a blessing to others. There's actually a spiritual blessing in that as well. I wonder, do we live that out? It's more blessed to give than receive. Well, that's a good phrase. It's a spiritual phrase, but that's not sensible economics. And so I'm just going to hold on, and I'm going to take, and I'm going to make sure that I'm secure, and I'm safe here. I wonder how many mighty acts of God we miss out on because we don't have the faith to obey and follow that clear instruction of Scripture. And you know, sometimes we have people come and share incredible stories, people like missionaries who've taken real steps of faith and have made sacrifices and it doesn't seem to add up and yet God has worked in a miraculous way and he's provided needs and he's cared for people and he's brought people along at the right time and they have seen the mighty hand of God. Why? Because they had the faith to step out and they realized that it's more blessed to give and receive and they've seen the blessings of God and they've seen the mighty acts of God. And so often I think in our lives we miss out on that because we don't put the scripture in place because we don't have the faith to believe that it's more blessed to give than receive. There are other things that scripture teaches us as well. Let's think about the whole aspect of sharing our faith. What are we commanded to do? What is Christ our commander command each one of us to do if we are his followers. Go and be my witnesses. And so wherever you are, wherever you're placed, to share the gospel, to share Christ, that they can come and put their faith. What's the biggest hindrance for each one of us in sharing our faith? You know what the biggest hindrance often is? It's the fear of looking foolish. We don't want to open our mouths and say the wrong things. We don't want to say something, share with a work colleague or relative, and them to look at us in a strange way and think, what an idiot. And so this fear of being foolish keeps our mouths closed. And we also think about the gospel. Yes, the gospel makes sense to us, and the light of the gospel has dawned in our minds of grasp, but, but to everybody else, it's foolish. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and so it sounds foolish. And you know what the best approach would be? I'll just keep quiet. I'll not say anything. I'll maybe pray that one day that work colleague or relative will come and ask me a question. And if they initiate it, then I'll answer. But there's no way I'm ever going to take the first step. There's no way I'm ever going to be that clear witness that God has called me to be. And then we wonder why so little happens. Why it's so rare to hear about people coming to faith. Yes, Maybe there's one or two people who become a Christian each year in the wider circle of our church, but it's, it's the exception rather than the rule, and it happens so often little. And we think, well, 
When was the last time I ever led anybody to the Lord? Maybe I've never done it, or it's been years and years where I had the joy of sharing Christ and somebody responded, and I saw a mighty act of God, and I saw a life completely transformed. And in part of this is we have a lack of faith. We have a lack of faith that God can use his word and that God can save and transform. That person wouldn't be interested. And we don't obey that command to be witnesses because we don't have the faith to believe that God will transform lives. And so we just keep quiet. Let's imagine this morning, let's imagine that we started to obey that command to be witnesses. All the people here who are believers, praying for opportunities, looking for opportunities, and then taking opportunities to speak out. I'm not saying that everybody who we speak to would respond to it, but imagine if we stepped out in faith and started to share our faith. How many people would come to faith? How many mighty acts of God would we start to see in our community, in our workplaces, in our families? You see, so often I think we miss the mighty acts of God because we don't obey Scripture. Faith obeys. There's another lesson that we learn in this passage here as well. We also see that faith waits. Faith and patience go together. The children of Israel walked around this wall first day. What happened? Nothing. They walked around the second day. What happened? Nothing. And in the minds of those soldiers walking around, I'm sure some of them were tempted to think, this is nonsense. We are walking around in circles expecting to capture this city. That is never, ever going to happen. Why are we walking around this city? It was a long walk as well. Quite a big city. And the temptation there is to give up. Get them, maybe give it a day three, day four, then we'll call it a day. Now, the situation here is, could God have done it on the first day? Absolutely. God didn't even need them to walk around the city. God could have just put the walls down like that. But each day as they walked around was a test of their faith. Each day, would they keep on obeying? Would they keep following the instructions to do it quietly and walk around the city? Maybe they were tempted to start shouting early with the walls collapsed down. Would the people keep believing or would they just give up? Nothing's happened. Let's just walk away. See, the Bible is full of people who had to wait. Think about Noah. God gave Noah an instruction to build an ark. It took him many, many years. And during that time, the people laughed at him and mocked him. This is nonsense, he probably thought in his head. Building a boat in the middle of the desert where it doesn't rain. And yet, by faith, he waited because he believed that God would do something at exactly the right time. Think about Abraham. God came to Abraham and he said, you're going to have children. And from your children, it's going to be a mighty nation. And from this mighty nation, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. God gave him that promise. And what happened? Nothing. He saw nothing for years. His wife was in her 90s. Women in their 90s don't give birth. He got to the age of 100. Nothing happened. And yet Hebrews 11 tells us 
He continued in faith. And he waited patiently, believing that God would keep his promise. And by waiting, he saw the promise come true. Now, there are times when we look at the life of Abraham that he was tempted to get involved, to interfere. God's not doing something. I need to do something. And so he decides to have a child with his maid, and that's a complete disaster. But when he acted by faith and waited, he saw God work. God could have destroyed the walls on the first day, but God is never, ever in a hurry, and his timing is always right. Christian faith requires patience. I talked about sharing our faith with people. That doesn't mean the first time you speak to somebody that they will come to faith. And so, oh, I've shared the faith and nothing happened, so I'll just give up on that. No. It may be many, many, many years before you see the mighty hand of God work. I think of a story even in our our church family here. I I see, or think about Stephen Gordon in our church, you know, Stephen, you know, part of our church, loves the Lord. But over many years, people prayed for him and people shared. It took many, many, many years of witness, many years of prayers before Stephen trusted Christ. But God did it at the right time. And so faith waits. Think about our own prayer life. We're encouraging the children to pray. We need to be people who pray. We're praying for things. Faith waits. Knowing that God will work in his timing at the right time. Imagine if the children of Israel had given up. Day five, nothing's happened. Walked away. They never would have conquered the promised land. And that feeds into our third point which says, faith conquers. Because the people had faith, they were part of this incredible victory. The walls fell flat, they stormed in, and they claimed the land. Now, God had already given them the promise. Let's look at verse 2. Let me read it again from chapter 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the mighty men of valor. The victory was already accomplished. God had claimed the victory before they walked around by faith. And then they saw it happen because they trusted, they put their faith in God, and they obeyed exactly what he did. Now, one of the key things in chapter 6 is the mention of the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which is mentioned 10 times throughout the chapter. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of the Lord with his people. And so God was in the midst of them. And as they walked around in circles, the people looked forward. What did they see? They saw the priest carrying the ark. They knew that God was with them. And maybe when they were tempted to give up and walk away and go, this is nonsense, they saw the ark and they went, no, the Lord is in this. God's presence is going with us. Do you know, as Christians, we have different spiritual battles. We're not fighting against walled cities. We have daily spiritual battles. And we've been thinking about these over the last number of weeks as we've walked our way through this series. What are the spiritual battles that we face every day? Well, one of the key battles, spiritual battles is to live holy and pure lives in a sinful world. We have sinful hearts, the flesh, as the Bible calls it. We're surrounded by sin and temptation. We have thoughts in our minds with the voices from others in our head, the exposure of a worldview that's all around us. And we have these spiritual battles. Are we going to live as Christ's followers in a sinful, broken world? Those are the spiritual battles we face on a daily basis. And as we do it, Christ's presence 
goes with us. Not in the form of an ark that people carried and the people could see. No, Christ's presence goes with us. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so as we go into our different circumstances to live for Christ and these spiritual battles face as they rage against us, Christ's presence is with us. And what does Christ tell us as we step into these spiritual battles? Well, in John 16, Jesus said, Take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has already claimed the victory. Through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, he has defeated death, he has defeated sin, he has defeated hell. He has already won the victory. And so as we go out into our spiritual battles, we fight from a place of victory. As Joshua led the people around, the victory was already won. They had to step out and claim it by faith. And so as we step into our situations, Christ's presence goes with us, and he has already conquered. He has already overcome the world. What else does it say here in 1 John chapter 5? These powerful words. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Overcomes these spiritual battles, spiritual challenges. If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, you overcome the world. And this is the victory that overcomes, has overcome the world our faith, not our faith in our own strength, because we are weak, we are pathetic, we give in to temptation, we give in to all these things that surround us all the time, we are weak in our own flesh. But greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. He has overcome the world, and through faith, looking to him, we can have spiritual victories on a daily basis. We can conquer, we can see mighty victories of God through faith and trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We all face these spiritual battles, whether they be in the hospital ward, you go for an appointment, you're facing health issues, and there's this struggle, there's this battle, are you going to trust God in the midst of it? In the classroom, where you try and live out your faith amongst people who are just no interest in spiritual things. In the home, as you try and live as a, a Christian father or a Christian spouse, whatever that might be. There are battles for our mind, there are temptations, there's lust, there's impurity, there's pornography that surrounds us, and there's these constant battles, and there's times we feel defeated, there's times we've given in to temptation, and we just want to give up because we feel like complete and total failures in the spiritual life, and we need to remember that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And by faith, we're able to have spiritual victories see mighty acts of God in our own lives as we, on a daily basis, overcome sin, overcome temptation, and live for Jesus Christ. As the people marched forward, what did they fix their eyes on? They saw the ark. They saw the presence of God, and it helped them to conquer the land. What are we told in Scripture to do on a daily basis? Fix our eyes not on an ark, but on Jesus. Hebrews 11 is that great chapter of faith, and then right into Hebrews 12 at the start. It tells us to run with perseverance, the race, race that's marked out in front of us. We need perseverance for living the Christian life. And as we do it, where do we fix our eyes? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher or perfecter of our faith. The author is the one who starts it, so our Christian life starts 
when we put our faith in Christ. He's the author of our faith, of our salvation. And he is the finisher, the perfecter. He is the one who can bring us through to completion. So we don't drop out. So we don't fade away. He can bring us through. Why? He is the one who's overcome the world. And if we want to live victorious Christian lives, fix our eyes on Jesus. Because faith conquers. And here's the final thing. Faith saves. This chapter involves lots of destruction. The city is destroyed, and all the people who lived in the city are killed as well. And this disturbs people. This chapter actually gets people angry. It gets them confused, and they just don't know how this can happen. Because we've been thinking, we've been teaching the children, God is like a good father. He's loving and he's caring. If he's loving and he's caring, how can the city be completely wiped out? God seems cruel, and he seems heartless in Joshua chapter 6. Here's the reality. The Canaanites were an unspeakably wicked nation. It actually mentions that in earlier books of the Bible. They're given the instruction to destroy the land because of the sin of the people. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what the Canaanites were like. They were an evil, godless people. And God was actually using the children of Israel here as an act of judgment on their sin because God is a holy God. He is a just God. He will not tolerate sin. And so the destruction here is part of the justice and the judgment of a holy God on a sinful people. These people have rejected the one true God, and they are not without knowledge because somebody in the city is saved. There's a prostitute called Rahab who has heard the stories, who has heard the stories of the mighty acts of God, and she suddenly believes this is the one true God, and she puts her faith in him. The rest of the city, they've heard the same stories, but it hasn't changed them. They haven't put their faith in the living God. The people marched around the city for seven days. Why seven days? The Bible doesn't tell us. God could have done it on the first day, just take the walls down like this. I actually see, well, the Bible doesn't say, I see the seven days as seven days of grace. Seven days that give the people on the inside an opportunity to do something. As the people marched around and they knew the inevitable was coming, the people on the inside could have cried out for mercy and they could have cried out to the living God. Because I see a similarity with the book of Jonah. In Jonah, Jonah is sent to Nineveh. Nineveh is another pagan evil city, a vile city where they used to skin people alive and kill the infants. And God, in his judgment as a holy God, sends Jonah with a message of judgment, destruction, God is going to wipe the city off the face of the earth because there's sin, and nobody can complain because that's what these people deserve. And Jonah comes with a message that in 40 days, God is going to destroy the city. Why 40 days? God could have done it there and now, and nobody could complain. That's what they deserve. But those 40 days are actually 40 days of grace. And what happens during those 40 days? The people in Nineveh, from the beggar on the street to the king of the land, they fall on their knees, they cry out to God, they seek mercy. They seek forgiveness. And what does God do? God relents from his destruction and the city of Nineveh is saved. For seven days, this city has an opportunity, like the people of Nineveh, to fall on their faces in front of God and to cry out for mercy. And yet they don't do that. There's only one family who's saved. Rahab, who we met back in chapter two, she heard, she believed, she put her faith in the living God. She cried out for mercy. You see, it wasn't the cord that she hung from her house that saved her. It was the faith to put the cord out. 
that saved her. By putting the cord out, she showed that she believed in the living God. And so she's recorded in Hebrews 11 as this woman of faith. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, that highlights her sinful background. But by faith, the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She realized they were God's people. She wanted to be with them. She identified with the people of God. See the comparison there? She did not perish with those who were disobedient. That's why the people perished. They were disobedient to a holy God. You see, the the themes of judgment and salvation, they flow through the Bible. Think of the story of Noah. The story of Noah is a story of judgment, what the people deserve, but also salvation. There's a boat. There's a way of escape. If you come to this boat, you will be saved. Think of Lot. Judgment coming because the people sin, but yet God saves a remnant out of the midst of that. The destruction of Jericho here is actually a picture of a future judgment that's coming. The destruction of Jericho is a picture of the judgment that will come for all those who reject a holy God. People who turn their back on God and say, I don't need God. I can live my life whatever way I please. The Bible says there is judgment coming. Sometimes people think there's a difference between Old Testament God and a New Testament God. You know, the Old Testament God's cruel and judges. The New Testament God is sort of cuddly and soft and all forgiving. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a holy God who judges, and he's a holy God who also in his love holds out a hand of grace and mercy. And this is a, a message that flows through the entirety of Scripture. And there is judgment coming. Let's not ignore this fact, there is judgment coming on the final day for all those who reject Jesus Christ. And what can save you? What can save you from the coming judgment? It's the same thing that saved Rahab, and it's faith. That's what Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, because our own doing, our best efforts are never good enough. It's a gift of God. By grace you have been saved through faith. The chapter ends, chapter 6, with a curse laid on Jericho. Anybody who tries to rebuild Jericho, it says, they will, they will have a curse upon them. Their firstborn will die, and their youngest son will die as well. That curse was actually fulfilled in 1 Kings 16. A man called Hael tried to rebuild the city, and his first son died, and his youngest son died as well. It was a warning from God against this city that was marked for destruction. And yet Jericho was rebuilt. And one day Jesus Christ himself went into Jericho. As he went into Jericho, the city that was marked for destruction, we see that Jesus holds out the hand of grace, holds out the hand of mercy. Because there's another sinner in Jericho, just like Rahab. This time it's not sexual sin, it's greed. There's a little tax collector called Zacchaeus, His only thoughts were himself in his own pocket. And then he encountered Jesus Christ. He deserved judgment for his sin, and yet he encountered the hand of love, the hand of grace, and the hand of mercy. And his life was transformed. And what saved him exactly the same as Rahab? He put his faith and trust in the Lord, and he was saved and he's rescued. What can save you this morning if you're not a Christian? The same thing. Faith in Jesus Christ. Because faith still saves. In fact, it's the only thing that saves. And if you reject Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's judgment that waits. But the hand of grace, 
the hand of love is held out to you this morning. So why not grasp that hand and find the joy, find the salvation, find a mighty act of God when he transforms and changes your life through putting your faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this chapter. And like the disciples of old, may we come to you this morning and say, Lord, 